Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Daily Evolver. This is Jeff Salzman here, coming to you from beautiful Boulder, Colorado, where you may hear the crickets. It's uh, early September here, and just a beautiful fall. As always, I am happy to be with you. Just to reorient us, the Daily Evolver is the podcast and blog where we look at current events in politics, culture, spirituality, whatever's emerging in our world, and we look at it through the lens of integral theory. And what integral theory is attempting to do, of course, is to map out the contours of what we see as the next emerging stage of cultural evolution and, indeed, consciousness evolution. And that is what's arising out of post-modernity, so the post-postmodern worldview, which we call integral. So that's what we're doing here. Tonight, we're going to look at a topic that has been in the news and culture lately, in politics for sure. And that is this question of, is the system rigged? Is our political and economic system rigged to benefit the people who run it? And the answer to that question, really from all points on the political spectrum, is a big yes. You're damn right the system is rigged. And of course, this is a theme. It's the driving force behind the Donald Trump campaign. And in his convention speech, he talked about how he alone can fix this rigged system because he worked with it for so long, and that actually makes some sense, you know. Uh, on the other hand, he talks about how the system is rigged against him now, like the polls and the media, for sure, the disgusting media, uh, and the, you know even the, the people who are putting together the presidential debate schedule. And he said that if he doesn't win— it's because the voting system is rigged. So we got rigged <laughs> coming from the Trump campaign. But you don't have to be uh, on the right or a Trumper to come to the same conclusion. We hear it from the left as well. Bernie Sanders and his people were mightily aggrieved by the primary process where the Democratic Party establishment spun things like scheduling and so forth to benefit Hillary Clinton. And of course, this claim was substantiated by the email dump that was delivered to us by Julian Assange and WikiLeaks. But their far bigger problem, claim, was that the whole system is rigged. That we have a system where 90 plus percent of economic growth is flowing to the top 1% of the population. They condemn a corrupt system that allows corporations and billionaires to spend millions influencing politicians and policy and public opinion. So that's the essence of the critique from the left. But we also get a critique from the vast middle about the rigged system. On the right-leaning middle, we hear more you know, sympathy towards the view that Government is too big and too powerful and too intrusive and unresponsive. And this is from the business people, the sort of, like I said, the right middle. 
and the left-leaning middle, and these are the scientists and academics, uh, they tend to see that the corruption is coming from the corporate sector and from an avaricious globalism that doesn't take into account people and cultures. So, you know, as you can see, there's nobody who doesn't think that the system is rigged, including me, and including virtually every human being who has ever lived in all of history. It seems that one of the key built-in engines of the evolution of culture and consciousness of, of humanity is a perpetual dissatisfaction for the system as it is, for the way things are. And that provides a lot of juice for driving us forward. And when we start thinking about what's driving us forward, and that indeed we're moving forward at all, that's when we start thinking integrally. That's when we start thinking about the movement of history. And that's one of the things that integral consciousness brings online is this fourth dimension of time, actually. So that when we take stock of any situation, of any system, uh, we want to see not just how it's playing out today, which is what we just looked at, you know, how it plays out in the political spectrum, but how that relates to the movement of history and how, by definition, this latest expression of dissatisfaction with the system is the thing that is currently pulling the system forward. What's happening is that we are essentially awakening into a bigger system. Not just the system of our economy and politics and war and peace and geopolitics and we go to our jobs and the highways and, you know, not just the system as we see it, but a larger system that actually has a history that continues to express itself in new ways. In integral theory, we often talk of moving from an egocentric worldview to an ethnocentric worldview to a world-centric worldview. What we're talking about here is moving to a cosmocentric worldview, a worldview that includes the world, but also the evolution of everything that has led up to this world and to this moment. So we have our small S system, which is a mess, an evolving catastrophe since day one. And you have the large S system, the system of many systems, of infinite systems, that created everything out of a big mess of hydrogen starting 13.8 billion years ago. So two systems. One's a mess, and the other is kind of beautiful. Okay, so with that evolutionary dimension online, and we actually want to feel it in our bodies, in our bellies. You know, we too are echoes of the Big Bang and carry within us that same propulsive creative force 
that, um, you know, drives everything forward. So let's look at this everything that we humans are driving forward. This ever-evolving system of culture and technology that we are embedded in. We're evolving and it's evolving at the same time. And let's start at day one, which turns out to have been a very long day, about the first 200,000 years of our history as anatomically modern humans. And we lived in small bands, tied together in bigger clans, and individual identity at this stage of the game is not really fully formed yet. Individuals are fused in what we would call a social holon of the tribe. And the tribe is the real unit. And so we think and operate as a group. And we are in first person, very instinctive and intuitive. In second person, communal, egalitarian, And in third person, in terms of the it's, the actual structure of the system, it's hunting and gathering. So how does this system work culturally? How does it keep its equilibrium? And we can get some insight into this by looking at our closest ancestors who are still alive today, chimpanzees and bonobos. And in both of those societies, if there is an alpha male that becomes too dominating and becomes a problem. He will be beset upon by the beta males in the chimpanzee culture. Interestingly enough, in the bonobo culture, he will often be set straight by a band of females. So when we think about a rigged system, this is, in a sense, the least rigged, at least by other human beings. It's sort of rigged by instinct and nature. But, you know, there's a certain appeal to it. It's, it's, the, it's the stage of development that retro romantics love the most. I mean, they think that the next stage, which is horticulture and agriculture, were a big mistake for humanity and that we should go back to this paradise of um, the archaic existence. I think there's some truth to that idea in the sense that we will go forward in a way that restores the best of that stage, which is a sort of deep community, a deep enchantment with the world. But there's no going back. And I'm not so sure it was that paradisical anyway. I suppose it it could have been when the, you know, food was plentiful and the weather was agreeable and the times when you weren't at war with the tribe on the other side of the mountain and when the wild animals were too hungry, and when you didn't have lice or a toothache or some festering sore. Um, I think other than that, it might have been pretty nice. But alas, whether or not that was true, or however it was, we do have to fall at some point from paradise. That is a very common theme in human mythology, and it describes this awakening into individual self-consciousness that kicks off the next system. And this next stage, which we in integral theory often refer to as the warrior stage, the empire stage, 
the red stage of development. This is where, well, at some point, we came to realize that when we dropped seeds in the ground of whatever it was we were eating and whatever it was we had gathered, that that plant would grow there. And over time, that realization led to horticulture, which is basically cultivating wild plants with something like a digging stick. And eventually, beasts of burden and agriculture. And at that point, we're off to the races with a whole new system that changes everything. People have a reliable source of calories. People are free to settle in one place. And so we have a new stratification that emerges in society where, well, it starts when young warriors realize that they don't really have to pay attention to the spirits anymore or to the elders, that they're actually better off freelancing or better yet, gagging up uh, into gangs of alphas, not unlike gangs today that organize and conquer each other and turn themselves into networks of gangs. Think the mafia. And this stage of development dominates the next 10,000 or so years of human history, from warlords up to kings and empires. It's where there's generally one person in charge, one person that the whole culture is focused on. Uh, It's ruled by fear. Um, The strong dominate the weak. Men dominate women. It's the age of the patriarchy. Although it is worth noting that women were in on it. Uh, They wanted to be protected. They needed to be protected. This is the era before the Ten Commandments, where it was not necessarily seen as a bad thing to go take a woman or to steal whatever you could. You would be irresponsible not to, whether you are raiding the neighboring tribe or you are sending out your as the king sending out your henchmen your men on horseback to conscript for the army to take people's sons or to take their daughters Uh, and you still see vestiges of this today certainly in the middle east with the treatment of women in saudi arabia in real strongman dictatorships like Saddam's Iraq, where Uday and Kusay, Saddam's sons, could go and grab women off the street. We see this in North Korea, where young Kim Jong-il just, I read, executed two more of his close advisors. And this is very typical. This is a marker of that kind of strongman control, where you keep all eyes on you. Everybody's on edge. What's he going to do next? Oddly, (laughs) we see some echoes of this in Donald Trump, who really is operating. Clearly, he has higher levels of development than this, but in terms of this campaign, he's operating at that red warlord level in the sense that he's not offering plans and policies. That's really the next stage up. That's where you get start getting rational and make plans. Uh, He famously doesn't make long-term plans. He doesn't carry a briefcase. He doesn't use email. He doesn't have a long attention span. 
He doesn't have a lot of impulse control. What he does do, and what has apparently been astonishingly successful for him in his life, is that he goes into any situation and he dominates the space. And he dominates the people in it. And he does it by sowing discord and actual confusion. I mean, we think that Donald Trump is careening from position to position because he doesn't know any better. I'm not so sure. That's a marker of a strong man to just be all over the place so that people can hold on to whatever they want, first of all, and that everybody has to continue to pay attention because that's where the power is. And I read something uh, couple weeks ago about something that Donald Trump said when he was in his younger years and he was really making his name as a celebrity in New York. And he said that when people get sick of you, and this is in regards to PR, when people get sick of you, that's when you lay it on even thicker because that's how you move into icon territory. That's how you get iconic status. And I thought that was pretty darn smart. And definitely that red warlord thinking. Okay, so in terms of the evolution of the quote system, as we continue to complexify society, we develop what we would call elites. And of course, we have the top elites which was what we talked about, the elders and chiefs of the tribe, early tribes, warlords, later tribes. And then we get into bigger clans, usually a hierarchy there, a ruling family. And eventually, what we would call monarchs, kings and queens. And so there's them, and then there's all the people who are carrying out their wishes and essentially running the system. They're enforcers, they're lieutenants, they're nobility. Uh, and this rise of the establishment is, you know, an achievement of humanity at every stage of development. And so by the time we get to the Middle Ages, we have guilds and professional associations, and you had to get the permission of the king to enter any profession, and you had to have an apprenticeship for many years. And the guilds determined what things cost, who was in, who was out, who could work, who couldn't. And, you know, this created a reliable establishment that was the best that they could create at the time. So, were these systems rigged? Were they corrupt? In a sense, these words don't really have any meaning. I mean... Corruption was, the what we call corruption, was the economy. Of course you steer resources and wealth and business to your own family or to your own tribe or clan. Of course you spin the truth to impress your buyer and manipulate people or, or, or rip off the stranger if you think you can get away with it. You would be irresponsible to your family not to. Uh, you know, this is the finest silk, this is the strongest horse. Uh, that's just what you do. Uh, sort of like a certain 
purveyor of the finest in our culture. Uh, uh, Trump with his casinos and golf courses and uh, stakes and ties and everything's the finest. And, you know, it's a lot of horseshit. But in a pre-legal system, in essentially a pre-rational system in the way that we typically think about it, where you're making arguments, uh, it's you're making assertions. It's you're blowing smoke. It's, you know, in its proper context, fun. But, you know, this was the economy uh, of uh, the uh, red and early traditional stage and still is in many cultures. And for many peoples and countries, uh, evolution continued and complexity continued. And we have more uh, complex uh, economies and political systems and customs turn into rules. And we develop bureaucracies that, you know, they, the, the whole point of a bureaucracy is to wring out the tribalism. And, you know, of course, there are sort of intermediate stages of patronage where you have, as we did in the early 20th century uh, in America, certainly, these great city bosses that would, when they became elected, they would change out the whole city government and it would be their nationality and tribe. And, you know, it's a little bit like the Sunnis and Shias. When one side wins, they win everything. And that's why, you know, you fight to the death because when you lose, you lose everything. So that becomes scandalous at some point. It's funny, you know, what is the economy at one stage becomes corruption, in a sense, at the next. And you see this happening around the world in what we would call a second world economies, where one of the big projects of these economies, and I'm talking China, Mexico, India, Ukraine, even Saudi Arabia, all engaged in high-profile anti-corruption campaigns with prosecutions of officials who are practicing the old, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, kind of uh, uh, what we now see as corruption, but which was indeed the establishment and the system up until now. And what they're going for is what we see in first world economies. And that is a fairness that is at least official, at least legal fairness that is distributed among all citizens and often accomplished by big, complex bureaucracies that actually develop an agenda of their own, too, uh, which is sort of a new kind of corruption. But that's a higher-level problem than what came before, which is official domination and exploitation of the people by the elites. And one of the great achievements of modernity and, 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 and what we see in countries that are first world, fully modern countries, is that the elites are, at least again in theory, subject to the people that they're ruling. Uh, and that's, you know, one of the huge shifts of modernity is that sovereignty is located in the citizen, not in the aristocracy. 
And this turns the system, at least as we've known it so far through history, on its head. And although you see still in second world countries that they're more or less democratic, in order to be a fully first world country, I would argue, there has to be a system that is distributed where every citizen has an equal opportunity to be protected and take part of that system. It's no longer ethnic. It's no longer whose tribe you're a part of. It's available to all citizens. And when that happens, and again, more or less imperfectly, even in a country like America or Western European countries, but when it happens adequately, you end up with a country where it's possible to do what I am doing right now, which is looking out my front window at a streetscape where, well, there are two young Asian young ladies walking by in shorts and tank tops, and they're very cute. And there's a guy standing there, and I'm not worried. (laughs) They're, They're in no danger. Uh, There's an older lady walking by with a purse. There's a young man with his face buried in a cell phone. And if I sit here long enough, I'm going to see children and people of all sorts who are all well-fed and clean and well-clothed, and they have somewhere to live that's heated and air-conditioned. If somebody is hurt, like a woman who hit a curb here on her bike not long ago. I dialed 911, and within three minutes, there was an ambulance with these fabulous professionals, and they took her off to a gleaming hospital on the east side of town. I look at the newspaper. There's yet another festival downtown. There's two or three pages of event listings from athletics to art to book clubs, movies, plays. There's a story about a new theater company that's starting in Broomfield. It's completely voluntary. They're using the Grange Hall, and it's just people who love the theater, and they're launching a production of The Importance of Being Earnest, and I'm very tempted to go see it. And I look at all of this, and I think, what a wonderful world quote Louis Armstrong. But it's true. What a wonderful system. What, what an amazing system that we are in at this stage of human evolution. A system that in previous stages of history, people would think of as some version of heaven. So how do we feel about it? Are we thrilled? Hell no. Two-thirds to three-quarters of the population of America, at least, thinks that the country's on the wrong track. 71%, according to CNN poll, think that the economy is rigged. Nobody is happy with the way things are, again, including me. I talk about this amazing political event of modernity where sovereignty is in the voter and so let's look at that in practice. We have these you know, smarmy politicians sucking up to us, 
pandering, appealing to our best instincts if it works, to our worst instincts if it works. It doesn't seem to matter. It's just, you know, kind of nauseating. It's repulsive. And I have to remind myself that as ugly as our political system is, and it is, it really is an amazing achievement over the previous systems. You know, and I I just remind myself that you know who doesn't pander to the voters? Our young Kim Jong-un doesn't pander to the voters. In fact, in North Korea, it's quite the opposite. The people pander to him, just like the old days. (laughs) They're there to make his dreams come true and make his world work. So yeah, we can see that our system is better than that. And once again, we get a, a glimpse of both systems that are at work here. The bigger system that has humanity going from sheer domination and oppression to patronage to bureaucracy and the creation of this modern system. And we have to ask ourselves, what are we dissatisfied with now? How is the system rigged? And why do things just seem so wrong so much of the time? And Integral gives us an answer to this by pointing out that evolution is structured that when things evolve, whether it's an organism or a culture, it includes the previous structures. So yes, we have a modern world. But there is still an inner strain of violence. We're still at war. We're bombing people with drones. There are neighborhoods and communities in our own country where people are not safe. There is violence in Boulder. You scratch the surface of Boulder and you see all sorts of problems, from homelessness to drug addiction to, yes, violence from time to time. So those things are still with us. And even on the political scene, there's still plenty of good old-fashioned corruption going on there with different tribal loyalties and even criminal stuff like bribery and kickbacks and corruption. What is it? Four of the last seven governors of the state of Illinois have been in prison, including the last one, Rob Blagojevich, who tried to sell Barack Obama's Senate seat when Obama became president. And he got caught, poor guy. So yes, the pathologies of the previous stages of development are still there. War, violence, criminal corruption. But it is much diminished, which leaves us free to notice a new kind of what we might call corruption. And that is influencing the system, this amazing, miraculous, wealth-creating system that we have in the developed world, and influencing it, often perfectly legally, but nonetheless influencing it, spinning it for your own advantage. And so we notice that 90% of the wealth creation of the last two generations has flowed to the top 1% of the population. 
We see good research from two political science professors, one from Princeton and one from Northwestern, who show that there is about a 30% chance that any public policy proposition will become law, whether the public agrees with it or not. But for the top 10% of Americans, it's quite different. That 70% of laws were passed if the wealthy were in favor of the law, while 0% of laws were passed when the wealthy were against the law. Again, this critique of big money running things comes more from the political left. But the political right also points out that Washington, D.C. is now literally the richest metropolitan area in the country. And there's a reason for that. It's because that's where $3.8 trillion of government money is spent each year and where thousands of decisions are made that govern a $17 billion economy, where entrenched bureaucracies that were set up for the best of reasons to create an equal playing field for all citizens, that they actually begin to have an agenda of their own and get involved in their own self-perpetuation, where senators and congresspeople spend literally half or more of their time raising money from rich people, where people are maybe careful about pay-for-play, because that is criminal, but they still spend the first half of their career regulating a business, and then spend the second half of their career working for a business or industry as a lobbyist. We have a legal system where people with a lot of money can bully and intimidate people who don't. So you see Donald Trump building his career on, you know, a lot of smoke and mirrors, a lot of not paying contractors, a lot of, you know, just good old-fashioned flim-flam like Trump University. And he is the poster boy for using the legal system as a weapon, having been involved in over 3,500 lawsuits in his career. And as he says, I never settle because he wants to know that if people get tangled up with him, it's going to be a long, bloody fight. And people don't want to do that. And so he keeps winning. And he's just the biggest winner ever. And he's going to make America a big winner again. And again, all perfectly legal. I mean, the guy's still walking around. But at some point, we start to wonder, fair, ethical. And when you start asking those questions, not is it legal, but is it right? Is it fair and ethical? And that starts getting traction. Then you're moving into another system uh, that I would identify as the greed postmodern system, where fairness sensitivity to people who've been left out of the system, who are invisible to the system, these things start coming into play. And even things like good old hardball politics become suspect, and we get more and more exercised over smaller and smaller so-called infractions. And I have to say, I think of the email dump on the Democratic National Committee and the astonishing reaction to that, that, you know, the, of course, the charge being, as I mentioned before, 
particularly by the Bernie people, that the DNC was spinning things for Clinton. And we know that they were scheduling debates on a Saturday night so fewer people would watch them and some things like that. But the major example of the email that proved the corruption was an email where one DNC staffer emailed another, and he said, and I'll quote, he said about Bernie, it might make no difference, but for Kentucky and West Virginia, can we get someone to ask his beliefs? Does he believe in a God? He has skated on saying that he has a Jewish heritage. I think I read he's an atheist. This could make several points difference with my peeps. My Southern Baptist peeps would draw a big difference between a Jew and an atheist, period. This is the big corruption of the DNC? It strikes me that they would be committing at least conventional malpractice if they didn't do stuff like this. And that I'm shocked that there wasn't more. Bernie Sanders, after all, was not a Democrat. He never ran as a Democrat. He wasn't registered as a Democrat. He's a Democratic Socialist. He caucused with the Democrats in Congress, but he made it a point that he was not part of that system. Well, these people are. They're for the Democrats. They're perpetuating the Democratic Party. They are functionaries in that establishment. And further, they made the calculation that Bernie Sanders would never win a general election. And I think they were right in that calculation. And they wanted to protect their interests. And this is how they were rigging the election. This and, you know, this sort of also generalized complaint that Trump also had on the Republican side, that the primary process is just so complicated and so arcane with 50 states doing it their way, with caucuses and different kinds of primaries where different people can vote and different people can't, and each state does it differently. And it's so complex and arcane that it just begs for people to see corruption where there may not be as much as they think. And I must say, I have a similar reaction to the latest email dump by WikiLeaks of Hillary Clinton's emails with the, regarding the, the Clinton Foundation. And the highlighted email that people are using as proof of corruption is where one of Hillary Clinton's staffers in the State Department to see if she could influence where his client or where the donor got to sit during a fundraiser. He wanted to sit at Joe Biden's table. I point to an op-ed in the New York Times written by Richard Painter, who was the chief White House ethics lawyer in the Bush administration. He's a Republican. And he writes of the Clinton Foundation scandal. He says, The critics have yet to point to any provisions of the federal statutes or ethics regulations that was violated by Secretary Clinton or her staff in their dealings with the foundation and its principles. Was there favoritism? Probably yes, but laws were not broken. If favoritism by political appointees towards outside persons and organizations were illegal, the United States government would be quite different than it is today. He goes on to write, White House political appointees and members of Congress show favoritism regularly. 
from how quickly they return campaign contributors' telephone calls, to which meeting requests they honor, to who gets what they want in the policy arena. This kind of access is the most corrupting brand of favoritism that pervades the entire government. Under both Republican and Democratic presidents, top ambassador posts go routinely to campaign contributors. Those of us who know and are frustrated about the way our government works breathe a collective yawn at the unsurprising news that the Clinton Foundation or some other nonprofit also gets what appears to be favorable treatment by a government agency. Lots of people and groups get favorable treatment, and most of these are interested in making money rather than giving it away. And that's the other point that needs to be remembered here is that the Clinton Foundation is about giving money away. The Clintons have not made a dime off of the foundation. So unless there's something more to come, another shoe to drop, and Julian Assange has promised us an October surprise, so we'll see. But so far, I'm surprised it's not, like, way worse. This is the worst of what people were writing to each other, uh, people who never thought that their emails would be found. I'm pretty amazed. And yet, in the interest of continued cultural evolution, I say, I don't like it, and I don't want it. And I come to the same conclusion as does the Republican ethicist, and by the way, the editorial board of the New York Times, that the Clintons ought to remove themselves from all association with the foundation. They've done a great thing. It's helping a lot of people. There are a lot of great managers and administrators who can keep it going forward, and they ought to take it as a win for humanity and serve in other ways. That wouldn't be true if she wasn't running for president and likely going to be president, but it is true uh, in, the, in the light of that, because this is another marker of green consciousness and integral consciousness, too. And that is that we're not only responsible for what we do, we're also responsible for how what we do looks to other people, even if we're not doing anything wrong, even if it's unfair by conventional standards. Why? Because we're tired of a system where influence is bought and sold. We're tired of a system where powerful people get more and more wealth and power. And we're at that stage of evolution where we're seeing that sort of rotten core that is at the center of this so-called meritocracy, modern, global system. And this, I think, if we just want to look at the upcoming election, is the biggest vulnerability for Hillary Clinton. And that is that she is just seen accurately as a product of the system that it is. And she has been enriched by it. She and Bill made an astonishing $230 million in the 14 years after they left the White House in speaking engagement, book deals, and consulting gigs. And again, that's all perfectly legal. And a good modernist would say, good for them. They cashed in on their market value. But it begins to look just unseemly. It doesn't look good. It doesn't feel good. And while Donald Trump 
if you believe him, has made many times that in his career of working the system, which he so freely admits that he has done. Still, he is the candidate who represents breaking up the system. And that's very appealing to people at this stage of the game because, like I said, we're tired of it and we want to change. Uh, Peggy Noonan, the conservative columnist, wrote a column uh, this week that really hit me between the eyes. It scared me because I think she makes a good point. And, and the, the column is titled, Can Anxiety Beat Depression in November? And her point is that Donald Trump is the candidate of anxiety. People fear that he doesn't have the character and temperament for the job. But Hillary Clinton, on the other hand, is the candidate of depression. And the idea that things are just going to continue the way they are. And human beings, given the choice between anxiety and depression, in my experience, will choose anxiety every time. We get that. We get fear. Fear is juicy. We know that all change comes with anxiety and danger. But depression, that means nothing's going to happen. And as I've often said, boredom is one of the great engines of evolution. People can handle anything, but nothing happening. My only hope is that most people, like me, see Donald Trump as a risk just way too big to take. And that is the calculation that I think will turn this election, where so many people are really hip to the ways in which the modern system is still rigged. And, you know, we're not immune, nor will we ever be, to that procreant urge in all of humanity that always has us dissatisfied with the way things are and always has us looking for a better way. And that has really been the succession of booster rockets that has pushed humanity forward to ever more humane systems. All right, to conclude, I just want to restate my thesis that when we ask the question about, is the system rigged, that we have to look at two systems. One is the smallest system, which is the political economic system of any given stage of development. And yes, those are rigged for the benefit of the people in power, whether it be the gang leaders or the warlords or the monarchs or the aristocracy or the bureaucrats or in our modern system, the experts and technocrats that make the system work. And this very act of looking at the evolution of the quote-unquote small-s system shows us that there is a bigger capital-S system at work and that that system is rigged too. It's rigged towards creativity and the emergence of ever greater stages of truth, goodness, and beauty. And that system is coming along nicely with ever-decreasing levels of violence and warfare, 
with ever-increasing standards of decency in terms of food, shelter, medicine, education, equality among the sexes, equality among all people. We hear so much about inequality in America and in the first world, and it's a real problem. It's what's driving a lot of what wants to break up the system. But if we look at the bigger system, the, the global system, and the historical system, people are living in a far more equal world than ever before. And as integralists and evolutionaries, we want to notice this because we intuit that in the new emerging system, we will not be motivated so much by fear. We're tired of it. Our nervous systems are shot with the fear and anxiety. And if we can see and trust that this bigger system is in play, then that gives us a new motivation to go out and participate with evolution, with emergence itself. And we can trust that we are, in a sense, being lived by this thing that wants things to get better. And that's a new motivation. That's not fear anymore. That's some version of love, some version of I want to help, some version of I want to express my creativity for the benefit of all beings. And that's, that's what we're going for. <laughs> all right, already. Well, thank you, folks. It's great to know you're listening. It's so fulfilling to me to try to think these things through in a new way. And um, I always appreciate hearing from you. You can leave me questions and comments at my website, dailyevolver.com. There's an orange button at the top of the site that says, leave a message for Jeff, and it's a voicemail thing. Or you can email me, uh, written or voicemail, at jeff at dailyevolver.com. All right, I think that'll do it for tonight. Thank you again for listening. And uh, this is Jeff Salzman signing off. Until next time, take care, folks.